The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're finishing up tonight this topic of truthfulness. Those who are new tonight, we've been uh, discussing the last year now these, this list that you find in Buddhism called the Paramis, the Ten Perfections of the Heart. And one of them is this quality of truthfulness. It's the kind of quality, of course, most of us intuitively feel you know, committed to. We understand, maybe even as a child, we understood that truth has some power. It's uh, deserving of our devotion. And, you know, even though we've dabbled in untruthfulness, when we're really aware and clear, probably most of us, most of the time, understand it's a slippery slope and often causes a lot of pain for ourselves and others. But probably what we haven't done is systematically develop, like reflect on and develop the commitment to truthfulness, what that means, what that would look like in our life. And in a way, it could summarize our whole path as a human being wanting to be happy, wanting to live a good life. Probably we don't need anything more sophisticated than just some intuitive sense that truthfulness is good and not just a sort of an abstract appreciation of truthfulness, but a, enough of a sense that it's good that we're inspired to unpack it. Like, well, what does truthfulness look like now? What does truthfulness look like in terms of doing our taxes, which some of us are still doing? You know, what is, how does that manifest in this conversation I'm having right now? Or how I relate to my own thoughts? What does truthfulness look like in that setting? And then all of a sudden, it brings us right to the essence of our lives. Because one of the things that any of these practices, any of the ten paramis, a commitment to generosity, a commitment to non-harming, a commitment to resoluteness, which is what we'll work on starting next week. Equanimity, loving kindness. Any one of them brings us into the unknown. So when I really look at truthfulness and this commitment to being truthful, I get to this place where I don't actually know. But what it does is it creates a profound kind of listening. And we're paying attention. How do I know what the truthful thing to say is in a moment? It isn't so pat, like, well, you just tell the truth. But a lot of times, it's not clear what the truth is. And the truth isn't so much just the facts on the ground. It's like when we say it, how we say it. Or even like what we take truth to be. Does that mean my opinion of things? So it's interesting how this commitment to truth for us a lot of the time it brings us to a place of silence or listening or humility. This is a good sign in, in life in general. <laughs> you know, when our mind quiets down because of this upwelling of wholesome humility, I don't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> and then the mind just gets quiet. 
I don't know how to handle the situation. I don't know whether to go left or right. And then there's a certain humility and silence that arises in the mind. And already, this is an expression of truthfulness. One of the most simple and I think also transforming expressions of truthfulness is that humility that we don't know. You see, so it isn't so much about having the right thing to say, the truthful thing to say, or the truthful thing to do. It's about understanding the limitations of our life. That whatever we think truth is, that's a relative, that's a relative thing. Reb Anderson is a well-known Zen teacher, um, used to be the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, and now teaches at Green Gulch and travels around and teaches. Green Gulch is a well-known Zen community north of San Francisco. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book about sila, about ethical conduct, called Being Upright. And he has a chapter on right speech. And in this chapter, there's a section called The Ultimate Meaning of No False Speech. And he says, when you're sailing in a boat, you can see the circle of water around you, but not the whole ocean. If you think that the circle of water is the ocean, then you are incorrect. Likewise, if you wholeheartedly attempt to tell the truth without being aware of the, limitation, the limitations of your vision, then your words will be a further enactment of your ignorance. If you are aware of your limited vision, which is a step toward telling the truth, then you will be somewhat anxious about whether you're telling the whole truth. Feeling such anxiety, you may hold more tightly to your limited view of the truth. And to assuage your anxiety, try to prove that it is true. On the other hand, if you attempt to speak the truth, if your attempt to speak the truth is grounded in the recognition of your own limited your own limits of vision, then the truth will be realized and you will be free from your anxiety. So isn't that true? There's something releasing and, and really satisfying about being humble about our limits. It's like even in the situation that I'm in where, you know, several nights a week I'm speaking about the teachings of the Buddha and this practice of being mindful, you know, and it's a real setup to be talking about something like this because anybody who's been practicing for a while understands, although it's simple, mindfulness is simple, it's not easy to be mindful. And it's not easy to go beyond our conditioned habits, you know, which generally are the opposite of being mindful. Our conditioned habits tend to be seductive. We tend to get lost in our aversion, our irritation, our greed, you know, all the different self-centered trips or dramas that we fall into. So, you know, like Reb suggests, thinking that I may know some things just in my life, I might have learned some things, and, and to think that that's somehow the limit of what someone can know, I mean, obviously that kind of arrogance is not helpful. And if I speak out of that, you know, then I'm sort of perpetuating, I'm spreading that ignorance, causing more problems. But if I'm aware of my 
the limits of what I understand, and I'm anxious about it, I feel insecure about that, that insecurity can also corrupt what I say, how I say things. So there's something about understanding the limits of our perspectives and understanding the limits of our knowledge and clarity and and really integrating that and not feeling like that's a problem. Actually, understanding our limits is a sign of strength. It's not a weakness to know our limits. It's a, a way, it's a step, like Reb says, Reb Anderson says, it's a step towards truthfulness to understand our limitations. It's actually a real power. For example, in my case, I feel a lot more relaxed and comfortable when I know my limitations and when I feel comfortable acknowledging my limitations than when I feel I have to somehow be perfect or be more perfect than I actually am. And this is, you know, probably true for all of us. He, go, he has a few more things to say here before he finishes up this chapter on right speech. The truth is not realized just by me saying what I think is true. Truth arises when my truth is offered, but not placed above the truth of others. The whole truth is realized in the marriage of the minds of all beings. And skipping a little bit, he says, the truth is not held on my side or on your side. I engender my truth to others in the faith <coughs> that I will be, that I will thus be liberated by my own small truth and realize the oceanic truth. I can never see beyond my own circle of water. And yet, being aware that my circle is just a circle and not the ocean, I'm liberated from it. So there's something really, I think, important in this teaching and something we can unpack and, and develop for a long time in life. And it's almost, you know how it is in, in life, some things just have a lot of power. And often the things that have a lot of power to transform our lives are surprising, are found in surprising places. And one of the archetypal places to find power is in better appreciating, better understanding our limitations. There's something profoundly transforming about becoming more and more intimate and what feels unacceptable and not okay. And I don't think Reb Anderson, or I don't think this teaching is saying that we have to somehow feel like what I know about Buddhist mindfulness practice is the same as what other people in the room know about Buddhist mindfulness practice. But if somebody brand new to practice, you know, asks a question later tonight, or says something about their practice later tonight, there's something truthful about that. There's something that adds something to our understanding about this practice. Even if somebody says something that, quote unquote, is wrong, there's, it's like a piece of what's true. So it's not like we have to pretend, you know, false modesty or think we don't know what we do know. It's not that at all, really. 
One of the things that I've learned more and more just in working at Common Ground over the years and, you know, just supporting this community and, and developing and growing is how this magic that I referred to, how it arises when we get out of the way. And I think this is true in intimate relationships, partners, with partners and families. It's true probably in nations. You know, when we have a very strong sense that we own the truth about health care, we get a lot of division and reactivity. And generally, not too much gets done. And when people come together and actually listen to each other, but also speak their minds, have opinions, but understand that opinions are just opinions, and fear is just fear, and hope is just hope, that something really beautiful comes out of this. There's a whole science or art now uh, in spiritual communities around this. It's called, sometimes called at least, the council method. I'm sure a lot of you have been in councils or this circle, you know, where you create a circle. Sometimes they even have like a talking stick, but of course that's not important. What's important though is that in the circle everybody gets a chance to speak their mind or speak from their heart. And everybody is received. What they have to say is received. Everybody gets the same opportunity to say where they're at with this particular issue, for example. And there's something, there's a lot of wisdom that can come out of just hearing what people have to say. We incorporate this more and more in our committees and groups and, you know, we just, we just let everybody speak about the subject. And then we might have a more open, free flow discussion. But there's something about everybody speaking their mind, adding their particular perspective peace that, you know, if we're receptive to that, there's kind of a group wisdom or intelligence that can flow out of that. Another aspect of, of uh, you know, staying connected to the truth or, to, or staying connected to the limitations of our perspectives. It's like just in terms of messiness, too. Like a lot of times, and we've talked about this over the last five weeks when we've been talking about truthfulness, one of the problems with the word is we have idealistic notions about truth being a particular opinion, a particular idea about things. I'm better than you, or you're better than me. We're all the same. These are these are too rigid of ideas. Any idea is too rigid. So part of this humility, which is a step toward the truth, is uh, finding ways to include the messiness and the uncertainty and the contradicting facts, or what appear, appears to be contradicting facts. You know, the more we include that, Some of you uh, knew, know that the Common Grounds Board of Director, the chair of Common Grounds Board of Director, Directors died in early January, or late December, actually. And, and uh, just being part of Rini's 
last months. Um, and, you know, any kind of medical crisis is con probably confusing, or most of them are confusing. What to do, what treatments to do, what supplements to take, you know, how much research do I do and when do I stop researching. And then, of course, when it's a life and death issue, it becomes even more intense in that way. And this is a good example of, like, how inclusivity is useful. Like including not just all the different people involved, hearing, listening, everybody, even if they're just in like fear or attachment, you know, really coming out of that place, but just everything being included. But also including like all the contradictory information, including that there's no way you could ever do as much research as you'd want to do. And just keep including and including and including. So the commitment to truth isn't to somehow land on this is what I should do. I should go to Kamagam Meditation Center every Wednesday night, and I should sit an hour every single day, and I should do a nine-day retreat once a year, you know, and I shouldn't hang out with these people anymore, and I should only hang out with those people. You know, this is our superficial way of going through life where we want to define the correct path. We want to kind of nail it down so that we'll be safe. But actually the path may include maybe much more about including the uncertainty and the limitations of certainty and how certainty itself may be a kind of violence. You know, the need for certainty and the clinging to certainty, that rigidity may actually be in the wrong direction. And the best way to be a good friend with someone who's dying, or the best way to be a good lover or partner for somebody, with somebody, or the best way to be a community member of Common Ground, is to be willing to include the uncertainty and that humility that we don't really know. You know, We don't even know what we should say now. And it's amazing to learn to speak from that place or to act from that place where we're not certain, but we know we're not certain. So there's a, a real power in knowing that we don't know. You know. Somebody, um, Scott, some of you know, comes usually on Sunday night, sent me this email after last week's talk from Abraham Lincoln. I hadn't heard this before. It's better to remain silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> but you know, I, I mean, I think there's some real truth to that. But that's not necessarily going to be useful because by opening our mouths and saying something limited, we may make a fool out of ourselves. But in being somewhat foolish or being inherently limited may help us all to find more wisdom, like what to do. And you know how that is. It's like when we're in a circle, you know, and everybody's sharing something, it's always easy to focus on, like, the blinders that that person has or this person has, or they always speak from this place, or they never see that part. But 
what we can also see, and it's good to see, you know, the limitations of where people are coming from. But we can also see, like, what they what they illuminate that nobody else is illuminating. Or in their sharing, what they're doing is they're illuminating our own hardness, our own rigidity, which makes us able to not be so caught in it. So when we express ourselves, when we do something, maybe we're less burdened by that limitation because that person has triggered it, highlighted it for us, and then we're not so deluded by it. Because, not because it isn't there, but because we're aware that it's there. And then the other thing we do when we're in that circle, when we're in that mode of understanding our limitations, understanding that everybody's limited, if we're kind of putting that out for everybody, that we're all limited. We're giving permission to be limited. And that, like uh, Reb says in, his, uh, in that chapter on right speech, when we're given permission to be limited, we're not anxious about it. And when we're not anxious about it, we're not trying to cover it up. It's like, if I'm here feeling that I don't know everything about my mind and I don't know everything about truth, but I feel like I should know everything about my mind and know everything about truth, well, it gets really neurotic. But if I'm here and I know that my mind's limited and I'm feeling like we've created this permission that just because there's a guy sitting and giving a talk doesn't mean that guy is perfect or knows everything, well, then it's a lot easier for me to share in a more direct way what I do know and what I don't know. And it's true for all of us. I mean, this is one of the things formally at Common Ground we try to do for each other. One of the reasons, I don't know if people understand it consciously, but unconsciously at least, one of the reasons people feel safe at Common Ground and feel safe speaking up and sharing, whether informally or formally in a group like this, is that there is some sense, intuitive maybe, sense that it's okay to be real and it's okay to be imperfect and it's okay to be limited. And that's, that's a, a powerful gift. And interestingly enough, it supports really profound things coming up. People saying really beautifully profound things. Not because they were trying to be profound or give something that would be meaningful. They were just being real. They were given permission to sort of speak from their limited place. But if we know, if they know, and we all know, that they're speaking from a limited place, there's something beautiful and powerful about that. Something, one more thing I want to share before opening it up. I wanted to save a little bit more time tonight, given it's our last night to talk about truthfulness. This is just another section from this chapter in Reb Anderson's book, Being Upright. It's uh, near the beginning of the, the chapter. Because we feel anxious and uncomfortable when we are aware that we're lying, it's easier for us to lie when we are unaware of doing so. Right? So this is the this is what we have to appreciate about deceit, about the lack of commitment with truth is truthfulness doesn't feel good. 
So it's going to go undercover unless we have a real commitment to truth. Because we don't want to knowingly be deceitful, because it hurts. It's, we notice the tension. So we have an incentive. And he goes on and says, thus carelessness and self-deception smooth the path of deceiving others. And we can lie more convincingly if we are lying to ourselves. With the aid of such denial, we can be confidently self-righteous, even when we are lying. Furthermore, lying is, lying is easier if we lack the wholesome self-respect that comes with a commitment to speaking the truth. I think I see this more and more in politicians, that some of the best politicians, almost by definition, are ones that can speak and really believe what they're saying is the truth. There's something really powerful when somebody, in a sense, in an integrated way, is saying something, and they've so thoroughly squeezed out any humility, any sense of limitation to what they know, what they understand. There's a real power. And it helps us feel safe. Because to whatever degree we're in the world of limitations, where things are uncertain, it's not clear if this is right or that is right. And then somebody seemingly in an integrated whole place is saying, this is the way, this is true. Drill, baby, drill, or don't drill, don't drill, or you know, whatever the politician may, might say. It's very compelling. Certainty is very compelling, whatever that certainty is about. So maybe I'll leave it here. Shared a lot about this. I'm sure people have had, it might be nice to hear examples, both uh, some of the things I've mentioned that might be interesting for people to bring up and share, like examples of that circle, whether it was a formal circle or not. Don't, don't worry about that. The times when you were with a group of people or just another person, and there seemed to be this real profound permission for each person to speak their truth, and how something wise or beautiful came out of that. Or maybe the absence of that kind of inclusivity. And also just the relationship between living a commitment to truth and including uncertainty. And, and maybe examples of dependence on certainty that you've noticed in your life. And of course, any questions that you might have from what I've said or from the previous weeks talking about truthfulness. So what comes to mind? And please, if you speak up, please say your name. Yes, Sandy. I just wanted to mention um, that when I'm in a group where we have like a talking stick or a three-minute um, pretend we have a talking stick, um, I notice a lot of impulses to interrupt or, or just to interject when it's not my turn. And I notice when I stop that, of course I can't speak up, but I stop that, then I really start noticing a different level of what that person was saying. It's like I, I dropped out into a, a different gear of listening on the end of Yeah, and I think it's interesting. It's like learning that the, um, the negative space 
you know, we've been talking a lot about how a commitment to truthfulness involves both sides of the equation, the sort of profound receptivity, but also the willingness to respond, to speak up, to act, and to how they both work together. So to, be, to have that enforced receptivity really supports that when the stick lands in our hand, you know, supports a, a, an upwelling of truth, of sort of a, a more useful expression of your part of the truth. And there may be that they come from, they depend on each other. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts people have? Yeah. Um, remind remind, remind Jennifer. us. Jennifer, thanks. I'm struggling a little bit tonight with why you've been bringing up politics lately. What, what you say about, you know, listening to all the different sides makes sense. And I can feel in myself rigidities often. Um, <coughs> and at the same time, I'm so aware of the way that rhetoric gets tossed around and as though there really is no way to evaluate the truth of some positions versus the truth of others. So I'm kind of an NPR junkie, for example, and I get so frustrated with this, we're going to let both sides speak, mm -hmm. and then there's this evacuation of responsibility on the part of the media to say, gee, which one has some validity, say, based on science or something mm -hmm. behind it? And part of the confusion that we all get caught up in is the rhetoric that's flying all the time. And I'm not unaware that the side that I attach myself to is rhetoric-based. I'm very mm -hmm. aware of that. And I'm aware of the rigidity that all everybody can get involved in. And yet... But there's a rigidity in that, too. Right? What's the rigidity in every... Okay, this side, side A, you speak your piece. Side B, you speak your piece. There's a rigidity in that. The rigidity is this unexplored belief that both sides are equal. So the Buddha said this, that there are three views you get caught in, thinking you're better, or one idea is better than another, thinking the other idea is better than yours, and the third is thinking the ideas are the same, that they're equally valid. All of those, it's like that's the whole point, that if you come at something with a, a set perspective, which I agree, I think this is, this is a mode. I mean, either you know, news outlets tend to be on one side or the other side of the equation, or they think that, you gotta, that the way to do it is to balance it. But remember, it's about being receptive, but it's also about being expressive. And everybody has to be included in that, including the journalists. There is no neutral position. And so we can be receptive, we can hear people, but we also want to share what we're seeing and hearing. And I think well, and there's this false construction of balance that happens. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely as false. But it gets represented as this. Well, it may not always be false. But I think, I think what maybe you're pointing to in that equation is 
the rigidity, there's an artifice there that this is how you get at the truth. You let one side speak, and then you let the other side speak. But that's not necessarily how you get at the truth. That everybody gets to speak, including the person listening to the two sides speaking. And wouldn't it be useful for a journalist, for example, to say at the end of A speaking and then B speaking and saying, sounds like you guys are just interested in you know, making talking points and that you really haven't helped the listeners understand what's going on here or what might be a useful you know, way to kind of see things, um, you know, see the common ground or see the pros and cons or the costs and benefits of the different approaches and see how there may be validity depending on what you want in each one. Yeah. Jimmy, um, in that case, wouldn't catching yourself to one party being informed or truthful? Attaching yourself to one party would be untruthful? Well, that, I mean, one of the things, I mean, this is a good question. What does it, what does truth mean? And one of the things we've been talking about over the weeks, it's only moment to moment. So if we do have a sense oh, I'm going to do this, or this is what should be done. That sense is only happening in that moment. We don't know if we're going to have that sense in the next moment, you know, that this is the way to go. So, so wouldn't it be in good practice to um, almost work to not attach yourself to one party and um, just take in all the information from, from party one, party two, party three through a million? Wouldn't that be better to just construct your own belief? Yeah, as long as you stayed open. That yeah, is, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tom. When you said that up top, um, that, that, where are these places that I've found that I've been in one of these groups I've been in? I can't hardly think of any, but then I thought of one in groups of other men, how it typically has kind of lack of maybe how the men have this there's a rigidity and I, I think I guess I see it more in women, but that's my view of you. Uh, the other place I see it very rarely is I I, I work in a corporate atmosphere there's these things called meetings <laughs> awful. They're supposed to kind of do this, bring the people together and do this, but there's it's, it's a pretty rare, especially in one of the days, it was so striking that, like, um, I know, when I was gushing after the meeting, like, wow, that was like, we were actually talking about stuff, and everybody was, like, bringing their cards to the table, and actually, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, have the faith that you kind of persist or anything, but it was, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice moment. But the place I'm thinking, where I see it most constantly, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. You have these kids, if you've been with these kids, you know that you're constantly finding yourself in these discussions like, well, you know, it's his turn to have to turn with the stick that you just found. Or you, you just pull into these things constantly where you're like, you know, you feel like this, well, I'm your parent. Mm -hmm. I didn't pass the test, it's not my parent, I just, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> you probably did something. But. Yeah, yeah. Sort out these, uh, all right, cut the baby in that. <laughs> Goodbye. You know, or, so that would be 
and my wife, we try to like, okay, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everybody gets a chance to talk without being interrupted. And that's, that's the best place. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Other thoughts about what you've learned in terms of speech and truth? Inclusivity? Yeah, Jenny. Well, the most interesting to me is when I have that, that talking stick dialogue with myself. <laughs> you know, because, you know, you see that instantaneous momentary change of what your viewpoint is, just, you know, even as you're uh, having internal arguments in your own brain about, you know, what is, what is my truth about my view of this situation, or, um, and I, I'm kind of giving feedback, from, I've been practicing kind of giving myself feedback of, Okay, so I'll think something, and then I'll feel what that feels like. Does that feel right or not? No, that sounds that feels like a lie, you know. And then, you know, so practicing that internally is I've found to be really helpful. And then I can extrapolate it out when I'm actually working with other people then too, and I can um, test my feelings against what other people are saying and whether you know, whether that feels right or what. So it's an interesting. I think I'm developing more. <laughs> yeah, but, but that, I think I'm glad you brought that up because people can be a little disconcerted by that, but I, I feel like it's a real expression of practice developing when our mind or heart, whatever, allows those different personalities, even despicable uh, conditioned patterns, you know, really lustful or really angry, violent, to express itself internally, not to act it out in the world. Because then we really get to hear their voice. They get to be added. And we learn something. Their expression, that expression of that voice, uh, helps us understand the truth of the moment. And uh, it's really profound. So you can, if you hear it kind of there, but you notice the old pattern of like wanting to snuff it out because it's not good. I'm not, I don't want to be that person. You can actually consciously invite it in. You know, go ahead. What are you feeling? Speak your piece. It's okay. It's safe to act out in this situation. In the space of mindfulness, it's okay for these conditioned patterns to express themselves. For anger, neediness, loneliness, whatever, to express itself. And to really see that, oh, it's just a con conditioned pattern. This is actually an express expression not of schizophrenia, but of the deepening inside of Tanata, the not-self. When we see that these seemingly seductive and powerful patterns, conditioned patterns, are just that. They're just conditioned patterns. They're not-self. They're just a, a pattern that has a certain, a mental, emotional pattern that has a certain coherence and charge, but there's no center to it. There's nobody behind it. It's just something that's gotten triggered due to certain causes and conditions. And when we see it like that, and then the next moment we see a different perspective. Because one of the things, like this is a, how truth comes out of that. So let's say one of our more primitive conditioned patterns expresses itself. I mean, I noticed this, boy, it was just within the last 48 hours. I just had like one of those lustful thoughts. And there it was. And because I, I'm been practicing, I don't put the kibosh on it. I'm not indulging in it. You know, these things happen very quickly. And I just saw it. And, and normally when I allow something to just sort of express, 
there's a there's a kind of immediate release and almost like a inner laugh, like oh, it's just that. And then because that was allowed to express itself, there's a moment of real profound insight, which is that that's empty, that that's not self. So isn't it interesting that in fully allowing some primitive conditioned habit to arise in the mind and seeing that it's just a conditioned habit, the next expression is an expression of real insight, like that that's not self, that it's empty, that thoughts are not self. So we can go from one thought to another thought, you know, and then now if I got identified to that, you know, I'd have to pop that bubble too. But that popping just happens when we just let the mind express itself over and over again. We stop taking any particular expression very personally, whether it's the wise person that understands everything's empty or the person that really wants something or really doesn't want something. It's just the momentary expression. And then no particular expression of the mind is held, you know, is clung to as self. I know, I really arrived when I can laugh at it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for bringing that up, Jenny. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the things I've noticed in personal relationships, especially in my marriage with my partner, is when we get into discussions about something, you know, one issue or another, I think it's yellow, no, I think it's red, you know, or I prefer to go this way, I prefer to go that way. Um, I found that it's less important, and I hope this is clear enough, it's less, it's important to try to get clarity around whatever the issue is, but it's just as important, perhaps even more so, to understand what the other person needs at that particular moment. And not only to clarity around the issue, but also being receptive to what the other person needs in that moment. And that helps resolve the situation. And so I think one of the things that truth leads to eventually is a feeling of peace. Yeah. You know, there's a whole movement that's quite popular now around the world called nonviolent communication. You might have heard of it, NVC. And it's, I think, I mean, this is my superficial sort of explanation of why it works. It's all based on understanding needs. And part of the form is for a person to, like in that circle shape, uh, circle form, to say what their needs are and to really ask the other person to hear what my needs are and then for me to hear and be able to respond back that I heard what your needs are. I mean, can you imagine just in a, let's say, take the Israeli-Palestinian issue. I mean, if all the, somehow all the Palestinian people could be here and all the Israeli people could be here, and one group speaks, these are my needs, this is what I need, I need this kind of safety. And until they felt that this other group of people really got, really heard their needs, and then these guys got to talk about their needs. These are my needs. And they got to talk about it until these, they were convinced that these people really got in their hearts what their needs were. I mean, how transforming that would be. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Other thoughts? Yeah. My name is Kelly. I just wanted to say, one, like, uh, my brief study, like Buddhism, I guess, in, in sociology as well, it seems there's 
kind of not three realms, but um, like I think in sociology it's like a super ego, like an ego, and like just really different levels of consciousness and like um, how like truth and consciousness may be um, really relative together. So like what like in the level that you approach somebody when you meet them, like whether it's of basing an impression of that person or really connecting to that person, and so how that um, works together. Yeah. And also that there's three, so that there's a level where you can connect, a level where you may be distant, but also somewhere in between where it's subconscious or it's so deep that it's it's meaning, but not you know in your realist sense when you don't realize it in the moment. Yeah, there may be more than three. But I think the, the important point that you're bringing up is uh, we're not looking for one conclusion. Like we might have a lot of different impulses right now or a lot of different opinions right now or intentions, motivations right now. And so the truth isn't figuring out which of them are true. The truth is there are many and maybe even confusing feelings and emotions and intentions going on now for us. That's the truth, you know. And so our expression or my expression or your expression or response to this moment, maybe it's best if it includes that confusing array of different impressions, different emotions, different intentions in the mind. Yeah. Yes, Stacy. Um, your comment, your example of the Israelis and Palestinians or political parties or whatever they may be expressing their needs, um, how do you overlay the um, discussion about certainty creating limitations? Like, aren't, aren't, isn't an expression of something you need, isn't that sort of a certain construct? Right, but I think what's transforming isn't so much although I think it might be useful for somebody in a moment to know what their needs are. But what might be more transforming in that interaction is for me to really get outside my box so that I can hear that you have needs. And for you to get outside your box so you can hear that I have needs. That may be more the catalyst for change than for me to get in touch with my needs or you to get in touch with your needs. Because I might just start, like, I might just start in a prepackaged way. Oh, I already know what my needs are. They're this. But what they might really hear is the fact that I have needs. You know, not so much what my needs are, but that I feel vulnerable, that I feel put upon, that I, whatever, you know. And so that, just to kind of really be receptive to that, transforms how we are. Because we tend to be locked into our self centered view. So to be, to learn how to be receptive to somebody not being settled, not feeling safe, being angry, being upset, to kind of rock our world a little bit, I think. A little bit more time if other people have thoughts. Yeah, Kevin. Um, well, whenever I go home to Texas, um, I, I, I count on this a lot. I grew up with the friends of my dad, it seems more and more that they're really uh, almost like the stereotype of what you think Texas would be like. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 
see, it's getting to the point where it, it's really hard. First of all, I don't agree with that. But I know if I say my point of view, that's just the option. And they'll just keep talking. And it's got, it's almost, I've noticed it's like, it feels like it's a proportion. And it's not just that they have a, a different view, it's there's a lot of views. And they just keep talking and keep talking. And I get, um, it's to the point where I, and I love these people dearly. I, mm-hmm. I really do. I grew up with them. But I don't get anything out of the conversation. And I don't know how to, it's like a train. It's like mm-hmm. a station. I don't know how to turn it into something like, even when, they, when people share the same view. going on with my dad who has become you know a fan of, of political points of view that I might describe similarly to how you describe people in Texas but we don't go there anymore and we have a really warm I think feels like a very warm intimate loving relationship but we just don't go there we don't talk politics at all and I, I mean and I'm really skillful and I think he's pretty skillful at avoiding it too and uh, and now it's just become so much the habit of not going there that it doesn't feel stilted not to go there. And we have a lot of quiet moments now because there's not a lot we can talk about. <laughs> right? That it's really okay. It's really okay. And that it, there there are a few things like uh, I had a, a couple times make it really clear that. I don't uh, not so much about the political view in particular, but. Um, I don't feel it's helpful to be angry and that I feel like both sides are really uh, they're fueled by anger and disrespect and I'm not going to do that and, and I told my dad you know he was being a little bit parental I said and I don't think it's healthy for you <laughs> and that's but I think he, I said it in a way that he really heard it and uh, so I mean that that may be the way to do it it's like not to not to get pulled into the this or that, but to add your moment of truth, which is, this seems really heavy, this seems really divisive, to somehow point out that we actually really love each other, and and let, let's just stay focused on that. And maybe it isn't important for this group of people to decide whether there should be healthcare, uh, you know, change in healthcare or not that maybe we can just stay focused on that we it feels really nice to be together and it's sunny and it's you know what I mean and we're gonna have this for dinner and that can be enough we don't have to we don't have to talk about things just because they're there to talk about the question is is it useful to talk about it and we don't have to have a we don't have to convince everybody like I'm really okay we have to be okay with division. Because even if we enter in these conversations because we think the divisiveness is wrong, that's the wrong, that itself is like the fear 
of things being unresolved or the fear of what we might consider to be a lot of ignorance out there, that fear, being motivated by fear, perpetuates fear. And it actually triggers the divisiveness. So when we add our peace, it has to really come from non-fear, non-greed. Otherwise, it's probably better not to speak. I mean, as much as possible. We have time for just one more comment. in the practice in um, becoming more calm in life, more simple. So even in our busy days, finding some time to notice what it feels like for the mind and the heart and the body to be unburdened. We're not going to notice when the heart gets burdened unless we know the experience of being unburdened. So we actually have to become very clear about what it feels like to be unburdened and intimate. And then when something starts to arise in our relationship where we feel defended, we feel negativity toward that person, it will just stand out because we know what it feels like when we're unburdened and feeling intimate with that person. Otherwise, it's not so easy. I mean, I think one of the reasons that divisiveness continues is people don't realize how much it hurts to be hating the other side and to be thinking the other side is stupid. It really hurts to be in that adversarial relationship with anybody, even our lover. And so when we, you know, like one of the great things about sitting a lot is if I have any unfinished business with my wife, as soon as I sit, I'll feel the charge. There it will be, you know. And then it's like it's like self-reinforcing honesty because we're not hiding. So every, if we invest every day in quiet and meditative or contemplative activity, we, it will be harder to be dishonest with ourselves about what's going on. Yeah, thanks so much for the good questions, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take the time to be quiet together. appreciating the receptive part of the practice where we allow the mind to go quiet, to feel what we feel and see what we see, and how that supports the expressive, assertive part of life where we speak up, we do, we act. May this deepening appreciation of being open and receptive, fearlessly expressing our lives, our heart in the world. May this lead to good things, to peace and wisdom and love 
for ourselves and for all beings without exception. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.